it's great to be with all of you and to see what God is doing in our church. Uh, he's doing great things. Uh, there's significant things that he's doing. Uh, would you pray with me? Uh, Father, as we come to this word this morning, we ask that you would uh, help it, that you would aid it through the power of the Holy Spirit to resonate in our hearts. Uh, we do pray, Father, that you would call us to action, uh, but also, Lord, that you would call us to a very deep personal foundation, uh, that our life in Christ would be just that, personal and very real. Uh, we sang a song um, about Abba, Father, using those words, and I ask, Lord, that, that those words would come to life this morning through this word. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We are in Romans 8. Uh, that being said, I'm not actually going to spend a whole lot of time in Romans 8, but I am going to proceed uh, through, through a few verses. Um, let me read verses 12 through 17 for you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons, the spirit of sonship, spirit of sonship, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let me say that again. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Uh, this morning, rather than spending time right away going in and explaining this text, particularly verse 16, but also verses 14 and 15, uh, rather than just going right in and explaining the text, the first thing I want to do, and actually it's going to take most of the sermon, is to help us understand this text in light of church history. And also I will bring in broader biblical context as well. Uh, but that's the first thing uh, I'm going to do. This particular verse, verse 16, has had incredible, I mean incredible impact in the history of the church, particularly in the tradition that we're in. Uh, it has changed countless lives. It's one of the reasons why we are here this morning is because of verse 16. And I'll explain that as, as we go through this. Uh, and then, of course, secondly, ultimately, uh, I'm going to relate this to, to ourselves. Not just church history, not just broader biblical context, but also it's, it, it's bring this to life, uh, hopefully anyway, bring this to life in your life, in my life, and so forth. Okay, so uh, let's, let's, let's begin the message in earnest. The question is, you know, how shall we approach, how shall we approach this, what I think is a very exciting text. I mean, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's a dynamic verse. How shall we approach this particular passage? Well, we are going to begin this morning with pietism. Uh, pietism is something that we don't hear a lot about today, unless if you are in uh, covenant circles. Uh, Evangelical Covenant Church happens to be the leading uh, pietistic uh, denomination, but we don't hear a lot about that. Uh, we still are evangelicals, 
right? Most of us would, would align ourselves being evangelicals, not only Wesleyan and holiness, but evangelicals. And so let me ask you this, these, these questions. Do you believe in daily devotional reading? Do you believe in that? Whether you do it or not, do you believe in it? Well, so do the pietists. Uh, do you believe in a regular, devoted prayer life? That prayer is essential, both personally and corporately. Do you believe that? So do the pietists. Do you believe in living a virtuous life, a life of character? So do the pietists. I appreciate all the other responses. This is good. Yeah. And do you believe in a personal relationship with Jesus? And so do the pietists. Um, well, I'm not going to spend too much time in, pietists, in, the, in the history of pietism, uh, but to do that would be more of a lecture than a sermon. But it will be helpful to know at least something about it, just something about it, particularly that pietism has its roots, we'll start with this, its roots in John Huss. I told some people the other day that uh, Huss was, I thought he was burned at the stake at 1419, but it's 1415 he was burned at the stake. For those of you who are in that men's group, just, just saying. Don't always get all the dates right. But anyway, 1369 to 1415, John, uh, 1415, John Huss. John Huss was an incredible man of God, but sadly, well, he spoke some words against indulgences. And I don't know if you know what an indulgence is, but it has to do with paying money in order to secure forgiveness of sins, essentially, in the end. There's much to it. It'd take a whole lecture to, to explain uh, indulgences. Uh, Huss taught against that, and the church didn't like it because indulgences were a great way of raising money. Um, yes, there was some bad stuff that happened in church history uh, on multiple sides. Well, anyway, Huss was a faithful, uh, faithful preacher, and he was burned at the stake in 1415. Those who followed Huss were what we call pietistic. Uh, some of those things that I already mentioned, you, you know, Bible study, prayer, all those kinds of things, having a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, those who followed Huss were pietistic. They became the pietists. Uh, eventually, those who followed Huss, well, at least many of them, not all of them, but many of them found their way into southern Germany. Uh, many of them came from a region called Moravia, Moravia and Bohemia, just south of Germany. And many of them were per persecuted, and so they, f they fled to southern Germany. And eventually they became connected to German Lutheranism. Uh, if you don't know much about German Lutheranism, it uh, was, uh, there's so much history here, there's no way I can cover it, and wouldn't even attend to in one sermon, even close. But the point is, is that Martin Luther was the one who's giving, been given credit for the beginning of the Reformation. And of course, by his name, Luther, right? Lutheranism comes out of the ministry of Martin Luther. He was also highly threatened. It's amazing that he lived as long as he did because every day he thought someone was going to kill him. So uh, the famous Wittenberg door happens in 1517. And he's in the, because of a, a, a prince, German prince called Frederick the Wise, he ends up being protected. And really miraculously, it was the hand of God that just kept him safe. And out of Luther came Lutheranism, okay? But, but the uh, pietists that came to Germany and associated themselves with, with Luther, uh, they had s some issues. They did not believe that German Lutheranism 
went far enough. The reason for that is because German Lutheranism was primarily a uh, faith of, of doctrine. It emphasized the intellectual life. So when Martin Luther talks about justification by faith, and I hope I'm not losing you here, but when he talks about justification by faith, he's talking about it primarily in terms of what it does to the mind. That the person is saved because you believe because that person believes in being justified by faith. You intellectually accept particular views. And, and, and they were very good, right? But it's primarily about the mind. Primarily. Right? So Pietists didn't think that German Lutheranism went far enough. They had this crazy idea. I'm just being facetious there. They had this idea that, look, it's not just about the mind. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. So they saw themselves as a second wave in the Reformation. Okay, so we're talking about the 16th century here, by the way, just in case you get lost on that. Okay, so, so uh, I want to show you how important the heart is in the proclamation of the gospel. It's absolutely essential if you ask me. So I want to take you to, um, just to give you some context, uh, Acts 14. Okay, I remember I opened the service talking about Antioch a little bit. Okay, well here we have the first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, coming back from their first missionary trip. And so in Acts 14, beginning at verse 25, we read, And when they had spoken the word, that is Paul and Barnabas, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Now that could lose you geographically. And so I don't know if you're, you're probably not going to be able to see that. This is Paul's first missionary journey right there. Now, you probably, like I said, you can't see that, but if, but if I had a little highlighter, maybe I needed a little highlighter, uh, maybe I could go right up here and point. Wait a minute. I think I can do this. I've never done this before, like in church, but I'm going to do it because I think it's that important. So here we go. I know I'm being crazy, but here's Perga, right? See, Paul started in Antioch, which is over there, and he went all the way around here, and then up through here and so forth to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, comes all the way back to Perga, then goes to Italia, and then takes that long trip back to Antioch. Well, at the beginning of the trip, he went to Cyprus and so forth. The point is, is that, that he went a There you go. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. Yeah. So I'll give you a little geography there, right? Jerusalem is south of Antioch, down over here. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. Watch the red light. Watch the red light. You can't do that if you're listening to this on podcast, but hey, watch the red light. There you go. So, so you know, things were happening, right? So they come back. I'll go back up to, just for fun, go back to this slide. See, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch. Now they're back in Antioch, where they been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. I'm always this, I'm this context guy. I'm always trying to give context, even if that means you have to wade through it. The messages are sometimes a little bit longer than you want. Paul, get us out of here in 15 minutes. Well, it's just not going to happen very often. Okay, so verse 27. And when they arrived, that is in Antioch, right? 
and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. Can you imagine? And how they had, uh, he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained, no, they remained there no little time with the disciples. Incredible, right? Just imagine how great it would be to be the church in Antioch. You sent Paul and Barnabas out on this missionary journey, and they come back, and they start saying things like this. These people got saved, and these people got saved, and these people got saved, right? I mean, if we sent out a group of people here, they went out, let's say, to Thailand, and they come back a year later, and they have all the, am I, am I singing your tune or not, Carrie? I mean, Carrie, wow, what a missionary. She's a missionary's heart. Uh, so, so what a great joy it is for the church. Because we're never just about this place, right? We're always about reaching the world for Jesus Christ. All right? Anyway, so, uh, but I'm moving, moving forward here. We've got to keep going. Oh, we'll be here, here uh, forever. All right? So let's move on, move on in the story. Now there comes a problem in Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. So in other words, Antioch is below, even though Antioch is south, I mean north of Judea, they're coming down because geographically, you know, they're coming because Jerusalem's in the mountains and so forth. So they're coming down from Judea and we're teaching the brothers, that is the brothers in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Significant problem in the early church. What are we going to do? I mean, these, all these crazy Gentiles are now coming to Jesus, and what are we going to do with them, right? I know what we're going to do. We're going to make them Jews, right? That's what, that's what they were saying, right? Circumcision, which is, by the way, being circumcised as an adult, that must be difficult. I don't want to go there, okay? Well, anyway, uh, that, was, that was the problem. So moving ahead, when they came to Jerusalem, they were, is that right? Yes. No, no, no. I'm sorry. There we go. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, if I was a Gentile, I would have been so happy. For, I would have been so happy for Paul and Barnabas, right? Not wanting to be circumcised, but also followed the law of Moses, right? They had no small dis- discussion and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles. I think Peter and the rest, right? And the elders think James, Jesus' brother, right, about this question. So being sent on, by their, way, uh, on their way by the church, they pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Oh, by the way, uh, as the missionaries go on one journey, they're telling all the, the church about all the great things that are going on that have happened, and people get joy, empowering the church as they go. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers, notice they're believers, they're Christians, right? Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, point one, and point two, to order them to keep the law of Moses. So we're going to make them Jews, right? That's, that's essentially what's being declared here. Now we get into this stuff that really pertains to the message today. 
The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Tough, tough question, right? And after there had been much debate, Peter stood. He stood up and said to them, Thank the Lord for Peter. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. Notice that language there, bore witness. Think 8.16 of Romans, right? Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, Peter could have said, hey, you know what? God made no distinction between them and us by giving them the right doctrine. But he doesn't say that, does he? He knows the Gentiles don't have a full understanding. of. I mean, it, we're all growing. Anyone here in process? Anyone growing intellectually, understanding the Scriptures? I know I am. Right? We all are, right? But what is it right here that's, that's critical? It's the cleansing of the heart by faith. How do you know that you're a Christian? Part of it has to do with the cleansing of the heart. If your heart is full of all kinds of bad stuff, you have a crusty old heart, it doesn't have to be old. It can be new. It can be young. It can be a little child even. If your heart has not been cleansed by God, then we got problems. we got problems. Uh, this is worth writing down. I put it in a different color. When the church forgets the role of the heart in saving faith, it gets itself into profound trouble. It just does. You know, I'd love it. You know, being someone who likes to teach, I'd love it. If I could just stand up here with a whiteboard, write down a few various, you know, a few uh, scriptures and a few principles, you know, and get you guys to believe it, think about that, and it's like, oh, that's all, that's all, that's all that needs to be done. Just think about it. Get it into your mind, and you're going to be okay. But that's unfortunately, really fortunately, fortunately, that's not what the Bible teaches. It has to do with the heart because it's about relationship. Uh, I can get so off, uh, off topic here real quickly, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Think about this for a second. You know, I just love, love talking to you. So think about this. What if you have a friend? Well, maybe that person's not really a friend, but you know someone. Well, maybe you don't really know them, but you kind of know them. And that person likes to talk, is real smart, but doesn't really care about you. The relationship's all intellectual, right? Are you really connected? We know this is true, right? Because in our human relationships, we want to be around people who love us. It's just who we are. It's no different with God. When the church forgets the role of the heart in saving faith, it gets itself into profound trouble. All right. This reminds me, and those of you who took Revelation from me, I hope that you think of this. This reminds me of the church of Ephesus in Revelation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, this is chapter 2 of Revelation, write this, write. 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, he's in the midst of the church. Spirit of God, this kind of thing. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. In other words, you've got it up here. You know the truth, right? That's good. I like that. And found them to be false. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. You're doing a great job. I know about this. I know that you're doing great up here. But look at this. But I have this against you, Jesus says, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Anyone here know the truth? But yet, if, you re- if, I got, if I got you really alone in a room and asked you the question personally, like, hey, tell me about your love for Jesus, anyone here would say, well, you know what, it's kind of grown cold. That's what happened at Ephesus. That can happen right here. That can happen in your life and my life because the heart's not involved. Or it is involved, but it's growing cold, right? It's getting crusty. Um, it's about the heart, friends. It's about the heart. Now, pietism connects with Methodism through the person of John Wesley. Ultimately, Nazarenes are going to come out of that as well, right? Um, I just hope you know that. So I want to talk about the experience of John Wesley. This is, a, this is a really neat thing. I think this is worth taking time on. So just bear with me throughout this process because we're going to find out that John Wesley, we're going to find out through his journal, that John Wesley comes in contact with pietists. Pietists are the first missionaries, first Protestant missionaries, and they're going to come in contact with John Wesley or he's going to come in contact with them. Wesley lives in 1703 to 1791. He has a great ministry. I don't know how much you know about John Wesley, but John Wesley was an Oxford fellow. Uh, He definitely understood the life of the mind. He started a group called the Holy Club at Oxford, and he was concerned with methodology, methodology for reaching holiness. He always knew that holiness was really what the Christian life was about. And he wanted to get there. That was what was important. But he had it all up here. Well, what's going to happen? Let's read, let's read through this. This is out of his journal. Okay? He's a relatively young man at this point in time. Notice the date, 1736. He was born in 1703. Makes him about 33 years old. And he's actually going crazy. Not literally crazy. He doesn't have mental issues. But he's very upset because he can't seem to connect with God. At noon, our third storm began. Now, this is when Wesley is going across the ocean from England to America. He's actually going to Georgia. And he writes this in his journal. He's on this missionary trip to save the Indians. Is this what he says? That's a quote, save the Indians. It's in his journal, save the Indians. So he's on this trip along with some other people that he knows. At noon, our... A third storm began. So he's at these high sea and there's a lot of problems. At four, it was more violent than before. Now, indeed, we could say the waves of the sea were mighty and raged horribly. They rose up to the heavens above and clave down to hell beneath. The winds roared round about us. 
And what I had never heard before whistled as distinctly as if it had been a human voice. You can just imagine. I'd be throwing up, right? I mean, I would be. I have an issue with, with you know, motion sickness. I, I, I would have lost it big time. Okay? The ship not only rocked to and fro with the utmost violence, but shook and jarred with so unequal grating motion that one could not, but with great difficulty, keep one's hold, uh, hold of anything and stand, uh, stand a moment without it. So he's like, he's just completely being rocked. Okay, very tough experience. Every 10 minutes came a shock against the, st- against the stern or side of the ship, which, would, uh, which one would think should dash the planks in pieces. So he's thinking the ship might be going down, right? At this time, a child privately baptized before was brought to be received into the church. Now, he's talking about the pietists here. It put me in the mind of Jeremiah's buying the field when the Chaldeans were on the point of destroying Jerusalem and seemed a pledge of the mercy of God designed to show us even uh, in the land of the living. Wesley's always going, he's such a man of of the book. He's always going to things like that. Okay? We're going to move on, though. At seven, I went to the Germans. I, these are the pietists, the Moravians, pietists. I had long before observed the great seriousness of their behavior. So he's had some connection with the pietists. Of their humility, they had given a continual proof. So the first thing he says is that, look, I already know these people are humble. They're special people. He knows that. Of their humility, they had given a continual proof by performing those servile offices for the other passengers, which none of the English would undertake. No, they're willing to do the, the, just the dirty chores for which they desired and would receive no pay, saying it was good for their proud hearts and their loving Savior had done more for them. These are the incredible people, right? Servants, humble people. And every day had given them occasion of showing a meekness which no injury could move. If they were pushed, struck, or thrown down, they rose again and went away. But no complaint was found in their mouth. In other words, he's just saying, look, I already know about these pietists. They're ridiculously Christian. They get it, right? They understand humility. They live in humility. They're meek people. They're not willing to fight back at anyone if they get hurt. These people show Christian character. He knows about this. Okay. Now, that's one thing that he says about them. But then now, there's a second thing he says about them. Notice this is, this is very dramatic. There was now an opportunity of trying whether they were delivered from the spirit of fear. And for Wesley, that's huge, right? Because if you're afraid of death, maybe you're not a Christian after all. One of the first things that God does in our hearts when we become a Christian is he removes the fear of death. Oh, I die. Guess what? I get to be a Jesus. He says, now there's an opportunity of trying whether they were deceived. These pietists are delivered, that is, delivered from the spirit of fear, as well as from the pride, anger, and revenge. In the midst of the, of the uh, psalm, in other words, the pietists were always singing psalms. That's what they did. We sing contemporary music, they sing psalms. I'm just telling you the truth. That's what they did. Psalms, wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. In other words, I'm dying. I'm going down. <laughs> Ship's going down. It's a horrible thing. He knows that. The, he's just he's like, he's, and he's filled with fear. Filled with it. What happens? 
A terrible screaming began among the English. See, he was with the English. He was an English priest. That's what he was. The Germans, i.e. the pietists, they're different. They calmly sung on. Can you imagine? <laughs> the ship's going like this. The wind's blowing. The, the mass actually cracks and falls right down in the ship. I mean, and what did the Germans do? They just like keep singing. I asked one of them afterwards, was you not afraid? He answered, thank God, no. I asked, but, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no. Our women and children are not afraid to die. Wow. Wow. What an event. I want to be like those pietists, right? I hope you want to be like those pietists. Wesley wanted to be like those pietists. It's an incredible experience. Here's the thing, the cleansing of the heart, which Wesley had not experienced. Despite all his efforts, the cleansing of the heart prepares a person for the empowerment of the heart. And you might say empowerment of the whole soul. The mind, even the body, gives us strength. Something about the cleansing of the heart that sets us on a new track for living a powerful life. The cleansing of the heart. Oh, I said the cleaning. Throw an end in there. The cleansing of the heart. There's a person for the empowerment of the heart. Okay, now, we get back to Romans 8. You're thinking, man, I thought this sermon was about Romans 8. Well, it kind of is. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Or if you didn't, if you did not receive the spirit of, but we did not. Essentially, it says you. Earlier translations that I have, I've memorized it, that we, for we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received, or you, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Because Wesley's had this incredibly just this magnificent, dramatic experience on the, ocean, on, the, on the seas with the pietists. Now, the date's a little bit later. He's in, he's in Georgia. And this is what he writes in his journal. Mr. Oglethorpe returned from Savannah with Mr. Spangenberg. Mr. Spangenberg is a pietist. He's a leader. He's one of the pietist leaders. One of the pastors of the Germans, he says. I soon found what spirit he was of. He's kind of shook up by this, by the way. He's discovered that this particular pietist leader has quite the amazing spirit in Christ. And asked his advice with regard to my own conduct. He said, my brother, I must first ask you one or two questions. Have you the witness within yourself? Now, Wesley's not sure what he's talking about. It's like, someone asked me that, I go, well, what witness? Have you the witness within yourself? Does the Spirit of God, now we're, back, now we're in Romans 8, 16. Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Let me ask you that question. Let me ask you that question. Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Remember, 8, 14 through 8, 16 is all about being sons and daughters of God. We're adopted into His family, right? So the question is, comes this way. 
Has, does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Some of you say, well, I don't know. Others might say, well, I think so. I've told the church so many times that the reason why we believe, there's other reasons, but the main reason why we believe that, that, that believe in the New Testament, believe in the Bible, believe that, that the message of the Bible is true is because the apostles give witness with their very lives. They're killed, right? Some of them, you know, maybe exiled, whatever, but they lose their lives. They proclaim the good news in the face of death. That, I'm telling you, that's why we believe. But just because you know why you believe doesn't mean that belief has changed you. Maybe you believe up here in your head, but not here in your heart. The reason why we believe is because of the witness of the apostles, but it's the Spirit of God that tells us we're a child of God. That's a different thing. We need to know why we believe, but we need to know that we are a Christian. I don't know, maybe someone here today is thinking, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I just don't know. Wesley goes on. He, he comments on this. He says, I was surprised and knew not what to answer. Of course he didn't know what to answer because he wasn't a Christian. Not really. I don't know. He didn't have, the heart, didn't have the heart. He observed it and asked, do you know Jesus Christ? This is, this is, uh, this is um, actually, I'm sorry. This is in the conversation. Do you know Jesus Christ? Wesley says, I paused and said, I know, oh, this is, I love this stuff. He said, I know he's the savior of the world and maybe that's you. Maybe you know that Jesus is the Savior of the world, but I'm, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you know he's your Savior? Wesley says, I know he's the Savior of the world. True, he replied, but you, do, you know, do, you know if he has, do you know he has saved you? That's Spangenberg always getting in, in you know, always asking these, the wrong questions. Now he's gotten personal. I answered, I hope he has died to save me. If that's your response to the witness of the Spirit, then you need to come see me or someone else in here who knows Jesus. Oh, you need to get right with God today and receive him as your Savior. Because I'm telling you, the gift of God is here today. It's here today. The Spirit of God wants to bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. Going on with this, he only added, do you know yourself? said, I do. And then Wesley says, look, but I fear these were vain words. In other words, they weren't really true. They didn't hold water. I wish I was like these German pietists, but I'm not. Now, Wesley will later come to an experience among the pietists in, in London, a place called Aldersgate Street, where he experienced the warming of the heart. It's very interesting that it was uh, during the reading of, of Luther's, German, German Lutheranism, by the way, and pietists were out of that tradition or connected to that tradition. It was during the reading of Luther's uh, preface to the book of to the Romans that he experienced this warming of the heart. And from then on, I'm telling you, Wesley, God uses Wesley to change the world. The reason why we're here is because of John Wesley's ministry. Others, too, of course. But because of the pietist that connects with Wesley, that finally, you know, that ultimately connects with Nazarenes, that connects with us here today, because of all those things, we can proclaim our salvation. 
that we are indeed part of the church. The church is never an individual church over here. That's why, that's why the, okay, look, I'm, all, I'm, I'm fine with non-denominational churches, but recognize your history, please, because every non-denominational church has a history. They're all connected to a denominational bent, right? There is no church that exists without some sort of history behind it. I don't care what church it is. The pastor who starts the church, if he's a church planter, has a history and a theology behind it. All right? Some of them don't have enough theology, but nevertheless. Uh, and that's not a put down. It's just true. It really is true. Okay? Um, all right. I was writing the sermon. I put in John 4. It only makes sense that it's about the heart, right? The heart is the place that is reserved for God in, in our lives or in any other place. It's that private place. Jesus, remember the Jesus, what Jesus says in John 4? God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Truth connects more with the mind than anything else, but the spirit is the way God moves in your heart. We worship it in mind and heart. Okay? There's more to that verse than just that. That's important. Important. Um, now let's take a closer look at Romans 8. Again, these verses, 14 through 16. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. This is what God wants to do in your life. He wants you to become a child of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, i.e., you're not the person in Romans 7. You knew I was going to say that, right? For those of you who have followed me on this, the Romans 7 is the person in slavery, right? The person in fear. That's not who we are. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You can throw in daughters, of course. By whom we cry, Daddy, Abba. That's what that means. Daddy, Father, Abba, Father. We are his children. No greater identification than that. We can identify ourselves as servants of God, as friends of God. Some people identify themselves as sinners. There's a place for that. That's not really who we are. We're children of God if we have the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so that's exactly where he goes with this. The Spirit himself. The reason why we can know we're children. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I really don't know where you are. I have a good sense of where most of you are. I love all of you. Do you know? It's funny, it says kids may live for children's church. You can ignore that. You know, um, because the heart is the only place where your life is reserved with God. No one can ever absolutely 100%. Like I can't, I can't look at you and go, I know, I know that you're a Christian. I mean, I'm probably a pretty good sense. You know, I mean, I love Chrissy and Chrissy loves Jesus and that's so obvious it's crazy, right? But there's, but so many of us here are like that. So I can know, but I can't fully know. In other words, 
the heart is reserved for God, but God gives witness to us. I don't know where you are, but if, you, if you're saying, look, I want the witness of the Holy Spirit. I've had some doubts about my own faith. I have some doubts about my place in God. This is a time. This is a time where you can come forward if you want. You can come to the altar rail. We'll pray for you. Um, you can come during the song. You can come to the altar rail for other reasons, too. It's always open. All right? But this is a time, particularly at the end of the service here, where you can come to the Lord if the Lord moves in your life. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, um, we need the witness of the Holy Spirit. We need to know that we're your children. There's no greater identification than being a child of God. Would you fall upon this church? Would you bear witness to them where there's sin, bear witness that they have sin and that they need to repent and get right with you? Would you also bear witness where appropriate that someone is a child, that we are children of God? Would we know you in that deep inner personal place we call the heart? And may we leave here today with joy, not guilt, not bad stuff that just drives us crazy, but joy because you love us so much. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.